The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I promised you we would have a special guest joining us. I would like to introduce you to Alexandra Hudson. She is a, I've got this all listed out here. You are a Novak scholar, and I want you to explain that a little bit, as well as a Young Voices contributor. Lexi, thank you so much for being on my program today. Thank you, Brian. Great to be here. So what exactly is a Novak scholar? So the Novak Fellowship is a uh, incredible uh, a, a award and fellowship and year of mentorship and also uh, financial support for uh, reporters to do a year of independent reporting and work on a certain project. So my project is on civic renewal. We hear we live in a, ver- a moment that's very declinist in ethos and nature. We hear a lot about what's going wrong. We hear that society is going to hell in a handbasket. My project is looking at where are things going right? Where are people flourishing? Where, where, where are the bright spots across our country that um, that we can celebrate and learn from and hopefully encourage the people that are uh, a part of the great work that's going on and, and encourage people that are a little bit more on the uh, depressed side, that uh, encourage them to that they can be a part of the solution too. We were just talking about how great a state Utah is. I happen to know some wonderful people who are doing some great work uh, in Utah. So yes, uh, that's my project. Well, I think it's safe to say we are, we're standing at a crossroads right now um, this last weekend celebrating Independence Day probably drove that home for a lot of people who may have not considered it before but uh, we, we look at America's heritage some people uh, are very happy to celebrate the good others are looking at it say oh no it's it's been bad from the beginning uh, the answer is probably somewhere in between those two extremes but uh, talk to me a little bit about the opportunity that uh, that came you know, you, I know you posted a column here uh, recently for USA Today about uh, the 4th of July and America needing to reinvent itself. What does that look like? Yeah, so uh, I, uh, I I just wrote a column for USA Today on a new report put out by the American Academy for Arts and Sciences. It's a really neat organization. They're private. It was started by John Adams um, in, the eight to, in, the, in the 1780s and George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, um, Ben Franklin. They were all members of this private academy of, of just learning and, and you know scholarship and, and, um, and problem solving. And um, they're still around, this organization that dates back to our founding era. And they just put out this report that was two years in the making. Uh, it was a by partisan uh, group on this commission of, 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 of democratic citizenship. And uh, this report uh, offers some, so they recognize like many in America, that Americans, American democracy is in trouble. There are, there are a lot of things, a lot of challenges we're facing as a nation right now. Um, and they've offered some, some suggestions for ways to, ways to improve it. And they, they use this unique framework to talk about what we need. We need, uh, we, 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 they want to usher in a fourth founding era. Um, the first founding they say was of course, 1776 and the, and the, 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 the original founding era. The second founding Founding was the uh, in the wake of the American Civil War. The third third founding was in the Civil Rights era, and so what we need is a fourth founding. And so the, the purpose of this framework is to show that we are a nation um, that has, from its beginning. Um, imperfectly lived up to its ideals. But each of these distinct foundings have allowed us to better realize these ideals uh, and a, a little more. You know, the Civil War, we, we abolished slavery. Um, Civil Rights Act, we enfranchised African-Americans. Uh, and so what will the what will the fourth founding look like? And that, that's, that's kind of the question it, it explores and offers some recommendations for how to, how to usher us into this fourth founding. 
Now, I have to ask, um, looking at these other foundings, um, I don't think we necessarily threw the baby out with the bathwater. It wasn't like we had to reinvent the wheel, but there were definitely, those were turning points. And I, I'm curious, what, what is seen as the, the major places where we need to change? What are the big challenges we're facing that could drive a fourth founding? Absolutely. So that they they talk about they they, they talk about um, three different elements of American society um, and democracy. There are political institutions. There are there's civil society and kind of the private sector. And there's also um, citizen engagement, the experience of the private individual citizen. And they uh, they have six strategies or goals for how to. Um, strengthen each one of those three prongs of our democratic citizenship, each of which are essential. Uh, and um, and I, in my opinion, I, I, I really commend them for focusing so much on um, our, our civic culture, focusing on ways to strengthen civil society and individual citizenship. They make some really interesting recommendations for ways to improve our political institutions. They suggest, for example, enlarging our House of Representatives, which hasn't happened, Brian, since the 1930s, which is wow. insane. It used for up until the 1930s. Every time as America grew, so did our representative. So did our represent our House of Representatives to make to make sure um, that our representatives were reflective of the population. Uh, so it hasn't happened for, since 1930s. They suggest doing that, which is probably a good idea for <laughs> for American democracy. Um, but they also suggest important ways to uh, for, to promote. You know, just the individual um, experiences, citizenship, and most importantly, uh, they want to reco- they want to encourage people to recover love of country and love of our fellow citizens, which is the most important thing, in my opinion. We're we're in a very broken moment, but uh, we need to recover that sort of civic friendship that allows us to coexist in our, our diverse and pluralistic society. You know, one of the things I was looking at, and I only skimmed the report because it is it's really comprehensive. <laughs> But I was looking very carefully because I'm always kind of on the prowl for, okay, is this going to expand government? Is it going to, is it going to cost me more as a taxpayer? Yeah. Is it going to have right. more control over my life? But what I saw were there were a lot of things that seemed to be intended to, to garner not only greater participation in citizenship, which can, can go beyond just politics, but also a sense that, uh, like, like you say, a reason to love your country enough to be a part of it. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, so they, they recommend, you know, above all, discovering love of country, love of love of citizen. And one really interesting way they suggest doing that, they want to have this sort of traveling conversation where we talk about citizenship and, and American identity, um, which is something that I, I agree with both theoretically and also practically. I've, I've been doing that here in Indianapolis um, in this past this past July, actually just a year ago, I curated a rare books and art exhibit uh, depicting themes from Indianapolis's and, and America's past and invited a bunch of leaders from across our state and, and uh, members of the community. We had over a thousand people come through this exhibit to be a part of this conversation. Like there's a hunger um, at, our, at, our, at our national and grassroots level to have a robust conversation. People yearn to have a, a sense of who we are as Americans in light of the fact that we have imperfectly lived up to these ideas. Um, and there's a hunger to that we want. We want to know who we are. We want to know that we have things to be proud of, and we do. Uh, and that's part of the problem. If we just dismiss 
American history part and parcel as, oh, it's racist from its founding, we miss the opportunity to celebrate heroes in our past that have stood up for, for, for justice and for equality for all these founding principles. You know, people like William Lord Garrison, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, um, all these, all these, you know, amazing heroes in our, in our past that we would otherwise miss if we just, you know, had a blanket approach. There, there, there is indeed a lot to be proud of and we have to keep talking about it to maintain a memory. One of the questions that comes to mind is you mentioned there were three previous foundings. And I'm curious in your experience, Lexi, was there a stronger sense of of that national identity? Did citizens feel more of a sense of of ownership during those times? Have we we drifted away from a sense of ownership that they felt that we now don't? What do you mean by ownership? Um, I guess it would be that participation and that sense of of, uh, enfranchisement and yes, this is our country and we are all a part of it. And, and in other words, we have some common ground, mm-hmm. regardless of, of, you know, whatever differences we have. There are some things that we do hold uh, to be commonly good for all of us. So there were definitely there was definitely um, an ethos of people like ha- be- being fed up with uh the, the, the lack, the, 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 as we talked about, the, 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 the fact that we'd imperfectly lived up to our ideals. And, and that resulted in people taking to the streets, taking up arms. We fought a civil war. The civil rights era was not pacifistic. <laughs> um, and so it's kind of interesting, and nor was the American Revolution. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting that as they talk about this land, language of, of the fourth founding, it's kind of hard to miss the fact that these prior foundings and, and, and progress that came out of them that is worth celebrating, it didn't come out come about peacefully. <laughs> no, so actually, kind of I'm seeing it. this now. There, I, I see the dissatisfaction that was at the root of it. Right. But I, I guess uh, just to clarify, I'm wondering if the people felt a stronger sense that, no, no, this, this is something that, that we all have a vested interest in being a part of. Because I'm getting a sense today there are a lot of people just kind of wanting to throw their hands up in the air and say, I give up. Is there somewhere I can go, you know, that I just don't feel like I'm a part of this anymore? That's a great point. But I, I almost feel like the moment we're in is a little bit, uh, um, I'm, I have a more optimistic approach. I think more people are saying, you know what, this is a gross injustice that we're seeing in you know, the recent death of, of George Floyd and uh, Ahmed Aubrey, um, and, 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 and especially many Caucasians, they're saying, white people, they're saying, I, I need to be a part of the solution. This is a gross injustice. And I, I I'm and are being less apathetic and fatalistic that this is just, you know, bound to happen. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. I think throughout the, the past, there have always been people that have um, been on both sides of, of the issue, but I'm encouraged that I think the broad consensus now is that let's fix this. Let's make sure for quality for all. <laughs> okay, my guest is Alexandra Hudson. We will be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My guest is Alexandra Hudson. We are talking about a very interesting report that was put out by the Academy of Arts and Sciences. 
It's titled Our Common Purpose. It examines how to make reforms to American constitutional democracy. And, uh, Lexi, I know that's, that probably sounds lofty to some people. Well, we're going to reform constitutional democracy. But what's, <laughs> what is the dynamic that drives this desire for reform? This isn't just, well, we need to remake the wheel. What, what, what is it that drives those people who have been researching this and, and trying to pinpoint? Here are the challenges. These are the most likely solutions. What drives them, I think, is what drives many of us, just uh, dissatisfaction with the status quo and and wanting to see better because we know we can do better because we have done better. Um, and and so it, this, this, this bipartisan commission of some very smart people on the political left, political right, uh, in many ways, they modeled the sort of ethos of compromise and, and reconciliation of, 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 of different but deeply held, held values to come together around around these over 30 specific recommendations for how to improve our democracy that we were just talking about a, a few minutes ago. And, um, you know, it's, it's encouraging in and of itself, even though, um, you know, I don't agree with every single recommendation. The, the people who put the uh, report together don't agree with every single recommendation on the report. Like That's just the nature of, of having a bipartisan endeavor like that. You're not going to get what you want all the time. It's the nature of being in a democracy. So it's interesting that they modeled the very thing that they're trying to promote in our society. You and I were talking off the air. Uh, as you had mentioned those foundings, it really brought to mind something. My listeners know I'm kind of I'm kind of a freak about uh, fourth turning. And and, okay. uh, and I'm going to send you a link so that you can at least, you know, kind of get a glimpse of, of Strauss and how these historians who yeah. looked at historical cycles, uh, because I, I see some parallels there. And, and I think that we are we are in a prime place for there to be another founding. And, and it ties in with what you're discussing here in that. Every one of the foundings that has come before, whether it was the original founding of the nation and constitutional period, uh, the Civil War and Reconstruction, World War II and the Great Depression, the, things look different on the other side of those crises that were a part of each one of those turnings. And I mm. feel like we're in a crisis now. And that's, you know, that's just the way that historical cycles seem to unfold. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm curious What's the most positive outcome that, that you could see? Uh, we're obviously at a place where, where people are looking. They're dissatisfied. We need to make some changes. If, if the best case scenario could, could be placed before you, what would that look like? Hmm. I, I think that we can really look at these sort of trends, these like the these cycles of, of history, and we can um, take away that there is a, a constant constancy of human nature that we have this capacity for, um, com- yeah, for complacency, for example, for selfishness, but also for for sociability. We're deeply social as a species, and we want to we want to help each other. And in times of need, times of crisis, whether it's the pandemic or these times. When where, of, of, where, where these series of racial injustices um, have occurred in, in recent weeks and months, where we're seeing just the the ugliness that is beneath our institutions that we that we might not otherwise see in our everyday life, um, those can be watershed moments where we realize, you know, what we're the, the true gravity of, 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 the, of the horrible things we're capable of um, as individuals and, and, and as a society. And the, the the hopeful thing, I'm hopeful that we can each recommit to be a part, being a part of the solution. And 
our everyday because often these huge questions like partisanship, um, polarization, systemic racism, like these huge questions, no single person or policy can fix these things. It's the cumulative effect of our individual decisions as 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 persons, how we interact in the everyday in the everyday that can that can really be a part of meaningful change. That is so neat to hear, and I'm I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that there is. There's a very interesting dovetail between that that fourth turning worldview of historical cycles and what you are describing. Um, you look at the the previous turnings that took place, the previous foundings, as as you were calling them, and mm-hmm. they were dependent upon what was the character of the people. Some of them, you know, turned out for the yeah. better. I, I would argue the the, the original founding was probably uh, a better result than what came out of uh, even uh, the Civil War and Reconstruction. It's not that. It's not that it was all bad, but there were some things, there was some baggage that came along with it that was like, okay, that, that moved us a little bit further from the original vision of, of the founding. Same thing with World War II and the Great Depression. Um, you know, there were good things that came after that. And I think the same potential is here today. What I'm hearing you describe sounds very much like we have influence. We have the opportunity by the kind of people that we are and the things that we want to stand for to influence how this founding can unfold. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I just um, uh, reviewed this book called From Oligarchy to Republicanism. It's in Modern Age Journal. You can find my review. But it's it's this, this theory that the typical history of the Civil War is that it's pro-slavery, anti-slavery. And the author of this book, um, his name is Forrest Nabor, says, no, it, it, the Civil War was a clash of regimes, the, the democratic north and the oligarchic oligarchic South. He says that the uh, the South was premised on you know a, a, a minority of plant, very wealthy plantation owners over a majority of, of impoverished um, white people who were only complacent with their lot in life because they had slaves to look down on, and how the whole whole system of a, a society propagated on such an evil institution as slavery it corrupted the soul of a society. And there's a whole body of, of um, social research on on this this notion that that human brutality and uh, cruelty, it not only debases the person who's hurt, it debases the soul of the person that exercises cruelty as well. And so when you have a whole society, like you said a second ago, about how you, there's a certain character of the people that supports a democratic free society. Like I think this, this uh, kind of alternative, unique history of the Civil War points that beautifully. Uh, and so when we, you know, are introspective like that, like to see that, you know, Americans just like us, we're, 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 we're capable of things like that. Um, I mean, similarly, we were talking about World War II as this watershed moment a second ago. Um, you know, we, we, the whole world like had this sort of huge reset in the wake of the Holocaust, where we were totally astounded that this incredibly sophisticated, civilized, educated um, society like Germany could just slaughter Six million Jews, twelve million people—you um, know—societal undesirables, as they termed them—and that that the result of of that horrid, uh, the, the 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 silver lining of that horrid um, part of human history was that the whole world came together and said, "Let's reaffirm the value of every individual human life. Let's reaffirm our individual human dignity and and do better, each of us, each country." And and you're probably familiar with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that has some very lofty ideals about the. Um, you know, individual dignity and equality and rights that we're entitled to. But in my opinion, that's a huge, a huge, a beautiful good that came out of, um, of the, uh, 
of the hor horrible uh, thing of the Holocaust, and also I think the civil rights era in many ways, um, rights for people with disabilities, rights for African Americans that came out of this um, mass disregard for human life, uh, condemnable, like universally condemned, condemnable <laughs> um, that, that the Holocaust was. So I, I think like as we're in this moment of tumult, uh, I think you're right to think of it like beautiful things do come out of, of death and despair, new life, new new perspectives. So it doesn't have to be just all one-sided. There is, there is room for, for growth if we look for it and if we allow that to happen. What gives you the greatest reason for optimism, despite all the craziness that's going on around us right now? What gives me the greatest reason for optimism is the fact that I, I've seen it. I've been studying um, bright spots on American society and culture for over two years now. Uh, I've been traveling across the country, finding places where uh, people who are helping one another, people who realize that they can't, uh, they can't control what Congress does or who's in the White House, but they can make their community better and more beautiful by just being decent and kind to one another. Um, and in a, in a, uh, public discourse culture that we're in right now that feels like a race to the bottom. It feels like, you know, nothing is off the table anymore. It almost feels like the last subversive thing you can do is to be a courteous person. You know, it's kind of come full circle again. Um, so I'm optimistic because I've seen it, because it's happening. Um, and so I'm grateful that there are people like you who are interested uh uh, interested that this is going on, and I think you're not alone. I think people are hungry for for stories like this and for for this undertold narrative. Um, so thanks for your interest in it. Well, I'll, I'll be keeping an eye on this. Uh, again, we're talking with Alexandra Hudson. She is an award-winning writer. She is a contributor to uh, to Young Voices and a Novak Fellow as well. Where can people find your work? I understand you're you're actually published across a lot of different platforms. <laughs> Um, my website, alexandraohudson.com. Please sign up for my newsletter uh, called Civic Renaissance. I'm, I'm just in the middle of rebranding. And also uh, the Twitter. Not my favorite medium, but I, uh, I, I, it is, a, it is a, uh, an important place to, to, to put good ideas out there. So It can be a bit of a lion's den, but thank goodness there are people out there who are you know, keeping a calm and rational contribution going there as well. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm sure. Yep. All right. Lexi, thank you so much. I appreciate you being my guest. I hope we get to talk again soon. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Second hour of the show now underway. We've got a lot to cover in this hour. I have a special guest joining me at the bottom of the hour. We will welcome Novak Scholar and Young Voices contributor Alexandra Hudson. And she's going to talk to us about a report recently released by the Academy of Arts and Sciences titled Our Common Purpose. I've been tackling this. I actually sat up all night long reading it. No, I'm just kidding. It's it's a very lengthy report. I've only had a chance to skim it. But it examines how to make reforms 
to American constitutional democracy. Now, if that strikes you as, well, that sounds very lofty and idealistic, um, can we at least start with the agreement that there's a lot of stuff that ain't working right now as far as, uh, you know, if, if you feel like, well, I want to be a participating citizen, I want to I make sure my voice and my influence is felt. Chances are pretty good that if you're not a very highly paid lobbyist, you're not influencing public policy. And this report identifies some of the common challenges as well as some of the solutions that may help in this direction. It's a long-term approach, but I think it makes a lot of sense. And again, Alexander Hudson will be talking with us about this coming up at the bottom of the hour. I wanted to start with a little bit of historical revision. No, no, no. Let me rephrase that. A little historical reclamation. Because it seems like it's really popular right now to make sure that the the founding generation is only viewed through that lens of, well, you know, of course, they were cisgendered white males who owned slaves. And yeah, 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 we get it. What we call the patriarchy was probably a very familiar part of their world. But I think we sometimes forget, maybe we're caught in the throes of chronological snobbery, that uh, that the world didn't always see things the way that people are seeing them right now. In fact, the way people are seeing them right now, uh, really, in, in the grand scheme of, of the things that have been discussed and debated and have been part of that great conversation that has flowed throughout the ages of civilization, uh, this, is, this is a fad. And I, I don't mean to be disrespectful to people who are feeling like, but, but you know, there's been oppression. There, there always has been. Get your hands on the great books of Western civilization. Grab the Syntopicon. There's usually two volumes. And just turn to a topic, pick slavery, and look at how many people throughout the last 3,000, 3,300 years or so have commented on slavery. And you're going to find a wide variety of opinions. Some people, Aristotle, for instance, actually said, no, no, it's a good thing. Some people need to be slaves so that some of us can do the hard work of thinking and creating. We couldn't do that if we were having to work, you know, and labor with our hands. We need to be able to use our minds. He thought it was a really good thing. Okay, we look back on that, and, you know, that that argument evolved through the ages. But we definitely find ourselves at a point where that's really not an issue today. And yet somehow we're supposed to look at, you know, the founding generations as well, you know, everything they did. I think that the common mantra right now is uh, many within the mainstream press are reporting that, uh, well, you know, the, the founding generation really was all about white supremacy, which is like the worst thing that anything could ever be, right? You can be forgiven for a lot of things. Oh, yeah, he's a philanderer. Oh, he's a drug addict. Oh, yeah. You know, she's an inveterate crook. But if you're a racist, oh, man, you are marked for life, unless, of course, you're Robert Byrd or, you know, you belong to the right political party, uh, then, then you might get some forgiveness, But let's talk about Thomas Jefferson. One of the things that you'll hear is, and and this happened a lot because of the president's speech at Mount uh, Rushmore, was that, well, you know, there were two slave owners pictured on that mountain, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. So let's talk about Jefferson for just a moment. Charles Burris has a great little piece. This was a commentary posted on the Lou Rockwell blog at lourockwell.com. And it's on Jefferson and slavery. And I bet you have heard some of these things, but I want you to hear some historical perspective. I may not change your mind, and that's okay, but you'll at least have a little bit more information to go on than you had previously. There's an article that was posted on Yahoo News 
apparently purporting to be from Thomas Jefferson's own family. There is a call going out to take down his memorial. But there are several vital, important historic facts that you need to know about. All of his active life in, as an adult in politics, Thomas Jefferson, in multiple attempts at various times, tried to end slavery. And Charles Burris gives three separate examples. As a young member of the Virginia House of Burgesses, he introduced a bill to this effect, but that bill was not acted upon. As a member of the Second Continental Congress and the committee chosen to draft the Declaration of Independence, he was the principal author of the document. In the original draft, he condemned King George III and slavery in the harshest terms possible. So this is from the original draft. Jefferson said, quote, he has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for, for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this execrable commerce, and that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of distinguished die. He is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them and murdering the people upon whom he has also obtruded them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. Okay, now Jefferson's using a lot of 25 and 50 cent words there, but there are two things you really need to pay attention to. In that draft, men was capitalized. Earlier in the document, Jefferson spoke of how all men were created equal. He capitalized the term men to specifically emphasize that the persons he was discussing were not property, but human beings with inalienable human rights that had been seized into bondage. Jefferson also appropriated language from English philosopher John Locke's second treatise on civil government, who was extremely influential to the founders and widely read. Locke talked about how men had natural rights to life, liberty, and property. Jefferson deliberately changed property to the pursuit of happiness so there would be no mistaking or justifying the concept of property to mean a right to hold slaves as property. Colonists from the South, particularly South Carolina, insisted the passage be removed. And notice the term that Jefferson used to describe slavery, execrable commerce, referring to human bodily waste. We all know the disgusting slang term for this process. Lastly, Jefferson drafted the Ordinance of 1784, which would have restricted slavery in all territories in the west of both north and south. It called for the land north of the Ohio River, west of the Appalachian Mountains, and east of the Mississippi River to be divided into ten separate states. The states would first be territories. They would remain territories until they had attained the same population as the least populous state in America. At that point, the territories would become states and they would have the same rights as the original 13 states. The Ordinance of 1784 also guaranteed self-government to the residents of the territories. Now, the move not to delete the clause regarding slavery failed by one vote in Congress 
because one man was absent, supposedly due to illness. Jefferson later remarked, quote, The voice of a single individual would have prevented this abominable crime. Heaven will not always be silent. To the, friend, the friends to the rights of human nature will, in the end, prevail. All because of the absence of one person in that one congressional vote, the country would be on the inexorable course to what court historians have described as the Civil War. And finally, one last point. There is not authoritative, definitive proof that Thomas Jefferson was the father of Sally Hemings' children. Sally Hemings was the half-sister of Thomas Jefferson's wife, Martha. But the DNA evidence is not conclusive on this, only that it was a male from the Jefferson family. Now, does this suggest, therefore, that Thomas Jefferson walked on water, that he's above reproach, that he was above question? Absolutely not. But can I just suggest, for the sake of argument, is it possible that there are people out there who would like to dismantle not just his memory, but every contribution that he made to the founding of this nation? And if the answer is, well, possibly, maybe, I don't know, I guess, why would they want to do that? The only answer that I can come up with that makes sense is... They want to divorce us from our past, separate us from the principles and practices that established this land and that secured our freedoms. Why would they want to do that? I don't know. Maybe they figure it's time they were in control. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We got a few minutes here. If you'd like to call in and join the conversation, do so at 801 331 8113. If you're catching the podcast, that will not be an option, but I'm still grateful to have you in my audience. There are so many voices out there you could be listening to. Thanks for taking a chance. Thanks, thanks for tuning in. All right, I want to talk about a subject here that I know is on a lot of people's minds. I know this because I was talking with a friend last hour. He uh, he went to the to the gun range the other day, I guess last night, actually, and texted me and said, hey, I just went to the gun range, and he says, they are completely sold out of ammo and almost completely sold out of guns. And I don't know if you've been following the headlines, but there have been uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 million-plus guns sold since March of this year. It's incredible. I mean, that that's unprecedented. And then you see images like the couple down there in Missouri where a bunch of protesters came into their private street and started marching. And I'm using the term protesters loosely because it was a mob. And while some may be peaceful, uh, the mob... It is a very volatile group. No one really feels responsible if somebody starts to get a little bit crazy and throw things and break things. And here this guy and his wife, apparently they're both fairly high-powered lawyers, came out with guns in hand to ensure that the mob kept on moving and kept walking past. I mean, I've seen T-shirts. I've seen memes. And it's uh, on the one hand, it's tempting for people to just kind of laugh it off. Yeah, well, you know, they, they really were out there, you know, projecting that violence and whatnot. But there's a very serious issue 
in the sense that people are scared. People are buying guns. They're buying up ammo. People, people have come to recognize that the, the government, for all of the good it may do in your life, likely isn't going to be there in your moment of need to protect you. And so people who previously were either ambivalent or maybe even a little bit anti-gun suddenly are seeing the light and realizing, ah, uh, maybe it would be good if we had some preparation. In the spirit of sharing some useful information with you, I want to share a post that I saw on a discussion board from a retired law enforcement officer. I've read this guy's stuff before. I think he is dead on. And it's some very, very good advice. And this is what he has to say about gun handling for survival. It's a fairly short read, but I want you to hear his take. If you own a firearm, hopefully this will make sense. If you're new to the world of firearms, this is really, really good advice. He says things have gone pretty crazy this year. A lot of violence and rioting. Also a lot of firearm sales, and I would imagine a lot of firearm carrying by people who don't usually carry. I've seen a lot of videos of encounters where people are not handling their firearms in the best way. And he says, remember, survival is a triangle. And the three sides of that triangle are physical, legal, and mental survival. A failure in any of these categories is a total failure. So he says, let's talk about gun handling and potentially lethal encounters. Most people will never amass enough experience in potentially deadly encounters to actually get good at it. A normal person may be in one or two potentially deadly situations in a lifetime. Many will never be in one at all. They happen all the time to someone, though, and there have been lessons learned. What we're seeing now is mostly failure in legal and mental areas. He says, let's talk about how to apply your gun as a weapon in a way that will give you the best chance of surviving physically, legally, and mentally. First, he says, know the laws in your area. And they're going to vary from state to state. If you don't understand when deadly force is justified in your jurisdiction, your chance of legally surviving is low. But above all, he says, don't guess. Don't listen to gun store lawyers. Find the people in your area who know the law and learn it, even if you have to pay for it. Most concealed carry classes cover that stuff. Some are better than others. But he says, remember this. Most of the time, no fight means you win. So he says, don't be baited into trouble by crap talkers, etc., Etc. Don't let your emotions get the better of you if you're confronted with hostile individuals. Your only concern is if they pose a deadly threat to you. No one is going to change anyone's mind anymore, and who needs a bunch of hassle? He says, let's talk about the couple in Missouri who defended their home with a rifle and handgun. Their tactics have been roundly criticized because they sucked. Now they're in a bunch of crud because they're of their gun-waving. While they physically survived and seem to be legally surviving, they are mentally and financially suffering because of this incident. They confronted the mob and stirred up stuff when they didn't have to. The man could have maintained a position of advantage from which he could have watched the mob with his rifle and himself out of sight. If someone lit a Molotov cocktail in front of his house, he could have dropped him just as easily from a position of advantage as he could have out in front of his house. Plus, he had no cover where he was and could have easily been shot by someone in the crowd. Think the prosecutor would have been okay with that? Well, I bet she would have been. An AR shoots flat out to 300 yards, no problem. You don't have to close with people if you have a rifle and can see them. They went out there with guns as a warning to the mob. And his point here is guns are not an instrument of warning. They are a tool of killing. Do not use your gun to warn people. That's almost always a mistake. And he says, that brings me to an important point about gun handling in the street, and that is to keep your gun out of sight. 
This is what Fast Draw is all about. If you cannot make fast hits from the leather, from the leather your pistol is of little use to you. You must be able to place two fast hits into the sternum area of a target in one to one and a half seconds to be effective. This is what gives you the ability to seem non-threatening and maybe de-escalate while still being able to conclude the encounter at the moment of your choosing in your favor, if necessary. And he says, if you can't do this, start working on it. It's the main skill you need. Now, he says, if you're at home or a place of business and there's not a full-blown riot going on, don't showboat with your rifle. Have it slung at your side or back, low-key, while you maintain a position of advantage. It only takes a second to bring it into play. And if some crap talker singles you out and starts giving you a hard time, just smile, wink, blow him a little kiss, don't say a word. There's nothing to be gained by it, but ideally he will never see you. He says, I saw the guy in Philly today pointing his gun at a guy with a bike lock. I'm not sure exactly what happened in that situation, but it appears it started with some crap talking and the dude ended up taking the bait. He says, most of the stuff I'm seeing is not worthy of drawing, but people are pulling their gun because they either have no draw, so they have to get their gun out, of the, out, out way ahead of time, or they're warning the person. Now, that guy may have legal survival problems due to the hostile climate he's in, and that's not going to be good for him mentally and probably financially either. He says, these are turbulent times, no doubt. All the more reason to be careful. Do your best to stay out of trouble. Do not allow yourself to be baited into a no-win situation. If the streets are blocked, just go around. There's nothing to be gained by giving the leftists what they want, which is conflict and martyrs. They don't have widespread support. That's why they're trying to use fear to attain their goals. But above all, this retired policeman says, do not draw until it is time to shoot. And remember, just because you can shoot doesn't mean you have to shoot. If you're truly forced to fire, well, then so be it. It's a lot easier to articulate a situation in which you're forced to fire than a grayer situation, especially if you live in an area where you may be politically prosecuted. And he reminds us it's a fine line when it comes to that moment to fire. Most of the time, though, if you have time to think about whether or not you should shoot, you probably don't have to. Something else he points out. Do not draw on people and then have conversations with them. That, that is a loser for you. Maintain advantage at all times. Do not be baited into a mess. Do not warn or threaten people or tell them to drop their weapon. Do not be a gun waver. He says, I can't stress that enough. Hopefully things will get better. We'll be able to live in peace. As an American, he says, I don't see how shooting each other is going to solve our problems. But there does seem to be a faction who are all about creating the why don't you and him fight scenario in America. So it may not get better. We may find ourselves in increasingly difficult times. But he says, whatever happens, make sure you are not manipulated into making a bad decision with a gun. I'm going to post a link to this. I'll warn you, there's a little bit of street language. It's just, you know, it's because he was a cop on the streets for a while and he, he uses some fairly salty language. But the information in here is extremely good. I would only add to it, get training sooner than later training gives you options training converts money into skill this is the brian hyde show